three, two, one. Hi, uh, hi, folks, and uh, welcome to Did You Bring Earplugs? An underrated musical misadventure. Uh, my name's Julian, and I'm joined today by Michael, Sasha, Julian. Yeah, we really tripped out the gate on that one, guys. Thanks. Honest to God, though, like, what what is signal to the year? Oh. Hi. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I Look, felt that. <laughs> we're, we're nothing on the show if not our honest, true selves. <laughs> and our honest, true selves feel that this show should be more popular, which is totally on point because today we are talking about artists that we feel should be more popular than they are. Uh, so just to lay some ground rules, you know, popularity is a, 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 uh, a subjective, um, kind of comparative, uh, metric. Um, so we're not necessarily saying that the artists that we're talking about today are not popular. We just feel that for some reason or another, they should be more popular. Um, I, in listening to past episodes, I realized that I very rarely go first. So why don't I go first this time? What do you say, folks? All yeah. right. Kicking things go off is it. Julian himself. And today I'm going to be talking about a little band from Southern California called Suburban Legends. It's just a state of mind and you are looking at the ground. But it's not raining. Look at the sky. It's hard when you're not looking very high. Now, I know everyone out there in podcast land are huge third wave ska fans. Um, we all went to see a lot of real big fish and Mighty Mighty Boston concerts back in the day. Wait, what's that? What's that you're saying? You didn't? What? Um, but uh, in Southern California in the late 90s, mid to late 90s and early 2000s, uh, ska music was pretty popular. Um, I remember distinctly uh, Real Big Fish and the Mighty Mighty Boston's co-headlining a, a series of three sold-out shows at the House of, Blue, House of Blues Anaheim uh, over one long weekend. And I went to two of those performances. And Sasha is making the expression that I'm sure many of our listeners are making right now, which is one of barely contained disgust. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but be that as it may, um, Suburban Legends were uh, a band that that toured a lot, actually, with uh, with those two bands um, and achieved a, you know, modicum of local popularity uh, that culminated in the early to mid 2000s um, where they oh, actually in 2002, um, they signed some sort of contract with uh, the Disneyland Resort and park i don't know what it's called anyway um but basically they they had this residency at the downtown disney shopping center which is like the shopping center that surrounds disneyland or, or sort of like leads into disneyland um that's where the house of blues anaheim is there's a movie theater there there's a bunch of shopping etc cetera, etc cetera. um so apparently in 2002 uh over the course of a matter of months they played nearly 1000 shows at downtown disney now, bear in mind that these shows were, I think, maybe split up into four performances per night, and they were only about 20 to 30 minutes. But still, even then, that's a lot of goddamn shows. 
Um, I uh, was definitely present at many of these shows, especially during the winter break. Um, my friends and I would drive to downtown Disney, uh, pay the probably exorbitant for a teenager uh, parking fee, and really just post up at this little plaza uh, in downtown Disney and wait for these performances to, to begin. Um, they were so popular that they actually sort of created its it created its own little scene like we would recognize people that you know that would show up on a uh, on on occasion uh one of which was uh related in some way shape or form to Brett Gurowitz um um a founding member member of Bad Religion and a founder of Epitaph Records mm-hmm. um I don't remember what his relation what relationship was but his last name was Gurowitz um but I digress uh so over the course of their career, Suburban Legends sort of uh, maintained a relationship with Disney. Um, in 2012, they released an all Disney's uh, all Disney covers album, and they continued to play shows at the Disneyland uh, Park in Southern California. Um, now, this in and of itself is not cause for popularity, but um, you can see how it would lead there. Um, you know, if uh, some random family from the Midwest or East coast is visiting Disneyland and they see this band and their, their kids enjoy it. Then, you know, it, it only serves to reason that they would, you know, buy the album and that they could potentially generate a pretty good, at least national following based on these appearances. Um, the other thing I thought of is, uh, related to another, uh, mid nineties to early two thousand ska band, uh, the Aquabats. Uh, now, the Aquabats were sort of already a very kid-friendly act. They wrote a lot of very silly songs, and they dressed up in costumes. They basically dressed up like they were a superhero team. Um, but the Aquabats were able to leverage their whole aesthetic into sort of a like variety television show um, that was geared towards kids. Um, and I could totally see Suburban Legends doing the same thing, because their music was pretty dumb to begin with. would have easily been translated into like, all right, kids, today we're going to learn about pizza. And then like, there would be this like upbeat ska funk song about pizza or something like that. Um, I just like in thinking about their career, um, I, I, I developed this whole career arc for them that was, was, you know, never came to fruition. Um, but yeah, it just, uh, like they were so palatable and so, uh, inoffensive that it felt like if they re- were to have really hitched their wagon to the Disney brand, um, that they could have been, you know, a lot more successful than they were. Um, has has anyone seen the the Aquabats television show? I have not. No. Yeah, it's 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 pretty bonkers, but uh, it's, it's sort of fun. Um, so they're like a kid friendly band. Um. He not like just from looking at like just from looking at them, you're not gonna say like, oh, this is like the Wuzzles or something like that. But yeah. they sung like, about pretty, you know, like 
Kid-friendly, but not on purpose. Yeah, that's that's a perfect way of putting it. Um, I, I, I ended up re-listening to their debut EP and album, and they, they're all written from a very teenager-y perspective. Um, mm. uh, so it, it would have only taken a slight nudge in the family-friendly direction to, to really make them you know, kid-friendly, parents-approved. Okay, so they're not the Wiggles. They are not the Wiggles. Is that what I meant by the Wuzzles? But yeah, I mean, I mean, and 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 really, you know, for them to be to have been approved to play at Downtown Disney to you know scores and scores of families, their music would have had to have been pretty pretty palatable, pretty you know G rated. Yeah, apparently they're still going, which. You know, good on you to be a ska band trying to make it in 2020. Um, you know, at this point, I think their 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 career trajectory is probably on the downward arc. I can't imagine them having some late career resurgence, like if we if we enter the fourth wave of ska. Um, but um, yeah, you know, what could have been? Wow, I did not expect yours to have such strong Disney ties to it. it- <laughs> Look, I mean, so so I knew going into this sort of that I wanted to talk about them just because it, it felt like even just from the perspective of like ska being a, a sort of flash in the pan genre for a few years. Um, but then the more I read about them, the more it, it became apparent to me that like, oh, if they, you know, if they had played their cards in a different, different way, they definitely could have had like a, a Disney Channel original show or something like that. Okay. I often think those things about myself, but that didn't happen. Julian, do you think we're long overdue for a ska resurgence at this point? No, 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 no. I I don't think we'll ever be long overdue for a ska resurgence. (laughs) What was your second part of the question? I was going to say, if we were to have a ska resurgence, Mm -hmm. like, how would it be different than 90s ska, for example, or early 2000s ska? I think we'd probably go more political. It, it, it might be more political, and I think it might go back more to its roots, yeah. its its dance hall uh, Jamaica roots, mm-hmm. um, which so mm-hmm. so one of the hallmarks of third wave ska, sort of erroneously, was the presence of horns, and I don't know where that came from um, because the, the the hallmarks of ska are like syncopated rhythms and like but you know sort of with like a, a little bit of a rock and roll background or backbone, um, horns <laughs> are sort of extraneous to the to the genre i think they became associated because it became like a common um a, a commonality between popular ska bands but horns do not a ska band make it's it's really that like upstroke like that that type of you know rhythm yeah. to at least the verses in, in the songwriting um so you think Voodoo Glow Skulls kind of threw a wrench into that with their Ooh. trumpeteering? Uh, you know, Voodoo Glow Skulls certainly weren't the first. Um, I mean, going as far back as, you know, the specials, the selector, you know, ska bands from the 70s, um, they, they had horn sections. Um, Voodoo Glow Skulls, I think, were probably more of a pioneer of the ska core genre, uh, mixing hardcore punk elements with, with um, you know, the syncopated rhythms and the horns. Voodoo Glow Skulls, uh, actually, now that you bring them up, Mike, was the first real you know, venue show that I ever went to. Um, nice. My mom yeah. drove my friend Adam Zamboni and I and waited in the car while we went into Wait, the show. someone else drove a Zamboni? <laughs> I waited in the car? Yep, she waited in the car. She might have gone to a Blockbuster and browsed around for a while. She did something <laughs> while, while we were waiting. But yeah, she, she man, Mama Suga did, did Adam and I a real solid, drove us to Hollywood, you know, made sure that we didn't die. Um, 
So yeah, shout out to Mama Suga for for making for making that experience a, a reality. Um, I got kicked in the head in the mosh pit during that show, and I had an out of body experience. Uh, not by Zamboni. Zamboni, uh, he <laughs> suffered his <laughs> own injuries. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but you can bet your ass that after he was done on that on that dance floor, that dance floor was smooth as. <laughs> <sick>. <laughs> Sliding around, yeah, yeah. But 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 going back to your to your original question, Mike, um, if fourth wave ska were to occur, um, it, it, ska actually does have a little bit of history with social movements. Um, ska was sort of born out of warring gangs meeting on dance hall turf, um, and I know this is my syrups and controversy, but look it up. Ska predates reggae. Just saying. Um, oh. Yeah, I gave a report on that in high school uh, about the history of ska, and I, it was met with a lot of very angry stoner eyes. Um, because, uh, <laughs> Southern, Southern California surfer stoners love their reggae. Well, look, if it's true, it's true. Yeah. All those glaring red eyes upon me. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, we were supposed to do something to Julian. I can't remember what. Um, marijuana's fun. Marijuana's cool. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's all I have to say about Suburban Legends. Look them up. Some of their early music is not that bad. <laughs> and that is the, the, the strongest endorsement I will give. Wow. <laughs> Should have been bigger. Should have made it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Mike, since you were inquisitive, I'm going to volunteer you to go next. Okay, so my uh, choice is Cloud Nothings. say you know it isn't that they haven't gained a lot of mass popularity but just I feel like they should have had a real, truly meteoric rise and I would put them in the same level of other garage rock bands as Weezer that's just my opinion of them and how high regards I put them really though like the the best way to prove my point that they are under undervalued or not as popular as they should be is just looking at the records charts they like barely ever broke top 100 or even they've only placed in the top 200 twice in the top 100 like once for their album uh sales so they you know they have some tv notoriety like being on jimmy o'fallon and other late night jimmy show, other shows ah jimmy um, o'fallon at Coachella they've done Pitchfork a few years but I mean really when you look at like how critically acclaimed they are and you know I would say 2012 was their breakout year with Attack on Memory that's my favorite album to this day of theirs still
it put them on the map, but years ago, and they haven't really. I wouldn't say they've risen, you know, higher than that point of like from 2012 to 2017 was like their max touring where they did the occasional international tour and pitchfork festivals, but they haven't really gotten to that household name level. I would say that I think that they could be. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like, like it feels like they plateaued after um, the album after attack on memory, um, which the name is escaping me, but yeah, it feels like they haven't really been able to to crest that 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 surge in popularity, which is it, it's it is curious, right? Because I feel like I'm not part of me, and a few of their more like pop leaning songs were were pretty pretty popular, um, but just yeah, never seemed to you know break over into real crossover appeal. Yeah, yeah. The only thing I could think of that factored into it would be like their record label, Car Park Records, which is uh, DC based. They're not like they're not the hugest label, so I feel like they're not gonna put them out in the same way as a major label like Atlantic or something would, you know? Yeah, or like a major indie label. Yeah, yeah, like, it, yeah it does feel like they'd be at home on like a sub pop or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and correct me if I'm um, wrong, but they they still haven't made their most recent album widely available, right? I think it's only available through Bandcamp. Yeah, yeah, the Black Hole Understands is mm-hmm. still only available purchase on Bandcamp yeah. or I think now Bandcamp's going to doing like $5 a month subscription service where you can oh, access very cool. records on there that way yeah. but yeah it's not on Spotify yet mm-hmm. most of their Spotify songs average a couple million plays you know they have some 7 and 5 million plays but overall they're like nowhere near that same level of you know Weezer. I yeah. just went to their Spotify to see the album I was thinking of when I think of them and they just put out a song today, October 13th, 2020. Oh, mm-hmm. so maybe this is in anticipation of a wider release yeah. for their most recent album? Who yeah. knows? I hope so. Like they're supposed to release another one. Yeah. There's our yeah, already the Shadow I Remember. That's coming out first quarter of next year. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I could see why Black Hole Understands this didn't really get a huge release as it came out in the middle of COVID. And um, it's a pretty solid album, but. I feel like since Life Without Sound, they've been trying to go for more like melodic sound that's not as angsty. I would say lyrically, their songs are still defeatist in a lot of ways, you know, that kind of millennial angst of giving up on the system, but um, not as harsh of vocals. You know, the vocal range has been toned down. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Really it's on the new album. It's funny that you say that because I, I remember distinctly um, we were all hanging out uh, at some point, assuming it was 2014, and we were listening to uh, Here and Nowhere Else, which was the album that I was trying to remember. Um, and I remember a mutual friend of ours, Alex, saying, oh, this album's very screamy. And I was like, oh, yeah. It, it, like, and, and maybe you don't realize that you know, if you're just listening to yourself, if you're, if you're used to that type of vocal style, um, but yeah, that, that album did vacillate between more traditional vocal deliveries and, and yeah, some real, some real hardcore leaning, um, you know, scream t- type stuff. Um, so that, I guess that could be also a reason why they maybe haven't gained the popularity that um, we feel they should. Yeah. Um, also uh, doing a quick Google, have you listened to their split with uh, Waves? 
Yeah, yeah. It, so supposedly it wasn't like a huge collab. Mm -hmm. It was mostly Waves that produced a lot of that and had Dylan do mostly the, you know, backup or vocals on songs. And lead, uh, lead singer Dylan Baldwin. Didn't really contribute that heavily. Um, it's mostly Waves, but hmm. that one's still pretty. Yeah, pretty it's a fun decent. album. It, and yeah, it's in, in sort of supporting what you said, it, it did feel very casual. Like it, it didn't have this big rollout. Um, but for you know listeners like us, it was it was a it was a fun album. Um, the other thing that I learned recently now I don't I don't get into like celebrity life gossip and stuff like that, but I did learn recently that Dylan Baldy is uh, dating Sadie from uh, uh, Speedy Ortiz, which like oh, boy, yeah. if, if that isn't if that isn't an, an intellectual power duo, I don't know what is. She like I think mm -hmm. I didn't know that until she like posted about mm -hmm. his birthday or something. I think like eight weeks ago or something. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I like them as a couple. Couples, love the indie couples. Yeah. Yeah, but I would, yeah, so I would just say I'd recommend uh, On an Edge from Last Burning Building and then pretty much anything from Attack on Memory, Fall In, Stay Useless, mm -hmm. Separation. Yeah, Those are a little less angsty and dark than other tracks on that album. I feel like Fall In could have been a really strong... I mean, it was a single for them, but I, again, just felt like it could have been so much more popular because it's so catchy. Yeah, I think they really tried to push Stay Youthless because that's really what they played on late night shows. Uh, mm. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. That's yeah. All righty. Cool. Um, Sasha, why don't you follow that up with your artist that you feel should be more popular? Um... Okay, so I guess like this band to me, I feel like they actually might be sort of getting their comeuppance a bit. Like I feel like with this latest release, they've had a lot more visibility. Um, but anyway, I still pick them because I think that they deserve more interviews, more everything. Um, so I chose Dead. Um, they are three-piece band consisting of um, Emily Kemp, Jason Bell, and Eric McGrady. They met in Chicago a few years before they released their first album, self-titled album Dead. Um, and it's it's a pretty decent album, I think. I mean, I um, I have I have actually haven't listened to it much, but. I, like when you listen to this one and compare it when you compare it to the other two, it's definitely the production is, is definitely not as mm -hmm. still has a great charm. And I think it's um, lyrically, it's very similar. There's a lot of like um, emotional and, and, but yet like some kind of fun lyrics here and there. And like the, just the general tone of this album is really good. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really like it. There's really decent songs and classic Emily 
vocals and it's extremely short. It's like less than what, like 30 minutes. Um, so not too much of an undertaking. Um, I think it's a really great uh, beginning album, I guess. Um, <laughs> um, so standout songs for me on that, uh, the one standout for me is Love Song in particular. Um, and then, okay, just to go on, they released their second album, Water, in May of 2019, which is, I think, a really great um, growth um, from the first album. Um, I don't know why, but it reminds me, like, a lot of the songs remind me of, like, they like they feel like they could have been in, like, like early 2000s, like, teen movies, like, in the background of, like, um, like, when people are hanging out at bars and chatting with their friends or whatever, like, or even they could have been, like, the type of band you would see, like, playing live and, like, almost, like, clueless, like, the, the clueless scene where they're, like, the band is playing. Like, I feel like I could see Dead, like, doing those types of shows on those types of shows or movies. Devin Sawa is trying to see some girl's face. Was it Devin Sawa and Can't Really Wait? Well, Devin Sawa is still a good one. Okay, yeah. Well, I, I, I might be mixing it. <laughs> Ethan Embry. Ethan, ah, same yeah. guy, basically. <laughs> They're, like, the same. Um, but, yeah, I just, like, I, I feel like there's a lot of songs that have a great bounciness to them, like uh, the instrumentals and stuff. So, like, I, I feel like sometimes when I'm listening to those songs, I feel like I see a bunch of teens just, like, flailing around and mm. smoking weed and shit. Um but yeah, I don't really have a, a much other to, to say about it other than it's just a really great addition to their collection. But it's also a really interesting piece because I didn't actually realize that it was kind of centered around Emily and Jason's like breakup, yeah. um, which is really fascinating. But like, as I was listening to it today, I was like listening to the lyrics. I was like, oh, okay. I can see like how this is about like a breakup. And, um, but yeah, I think, I think it's really strong. Um, standouts for me are Wild, Lucky, and Sunbeat. Um, okay, and just to move on to the next album, their, their latest album, uh, Flowers of Devotion, which was released in July of this year. I've been listening to it pretty regularly ever since. Um, like, what can I say about this album that we haven't already said? Because I feel like we've talked about that a yeah. couple times. Um, but it's just uh, amazing vocals, first of all. Emily's voice is just my favorite, like, one of my favorite singing voices I've heard in a long time. Um, I love that she can just, like, switch between, like, a soft, softer timbre to, like, this guttural, like, chest-driven voice. Yeah, she has a and, like, really amazing a, range. Like, on the Yeah, incredible range. Um, and, like, as an alto, too, like, I envy <laughs> her her ability to go as low as she can. Mm -hmm. And um, I just, I'm, 
I'm just extremely envious of her voice, but also um, their production is definitely the strongest as this album, I think was the first time they'd recorded in an actual studio. I believe so. Um, um, and it, it really does just like showcase how much they've honed in on their skills and their sound. And I like, I've, I've, I feel like they've always been pretty consistent, but I feel like this album in particular is just a lot more expansive and lush um, and just like a bit with a bit more depth still that very like sincere emotional quality mm -hmm. to their lyrics especially in songs like apart loner flying um there's just a lot of emotional depth and i really like it um and i think this is probably my favorite album of the year so i think i i guess i think they should be more popular because i think they're just a band that continues to grow and they just have a really great energy and each of them brings something really special. And I feel like they could easily be opening or even opening for really big bands, but even headlining, you know, or like the smaller festivals in Chicago or obviously being a part of some of the bigger ones. And, you know, they were going to be playing Pitchfork this year, but of course, you know, that, that, uh, um, so yeah, I, I love this album. Standouts are, what I've mentioned before, and also desire and no time, just because those those vocals are, are some of my best and my favorite vocals in the in the album. Yeah, I I, I agree, especially so. Um, before uh, Flower of Devotion was coming out, I, I did a uh, I scoured the internet for every bit of interview and information that I could find, and um, they were covered during a segment of um, All Things Considered. Um, mm -hmm. and it, it, yeah, it's, it's surprising <laughs> that even around the release of water, they didn't get more popular. Um, mm -hmm. especially because they, to me, evoke a lot of, uh, velvet underground, but like a yes. more modern, more accessible velvet underground. Mm -hmm. And it's surprising to see that looking at their Spotify stats that, um, so Chicago and, and LA are their two top listening cities. Um, mm -hmm. both around 7,000 concurrent listeners each. Um, but then New York takes a big dip, and I feel like this would be like a really, like, not only did they evoke Velvet Underground, but almost like that, like, New York sort of, like, art punk scene. Um, yeah. Especially just in, in the way that the band presents itself. They're, <laughs> like, uh, Eric and Jason are sort of very, like, sha sha uh, shabby chic, whereas, like, Emily has a, a very iconoclastic, um, you know, style. Um, yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah, it, like it does feel like they would have appealed to the NPR crowd, like a, a crowd that maybe grew up with the Velvet Underground or you know art rock of the 1970s and 1980s. And this mm -hmm. feels like a, like I said, like a modern extension of that aesthetic. Um, so yeah, agreed. And, and, oh, and also the the song on uh, I think it's on my side, um, off of Water, is like mm -hmm. emotionally rigorous and just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah a, a vocal a vocal performance that em Emily doesn't often give, but that is is really, really something. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, their album art I would say is pretty indicative of that, like bootstrap punk mm -hmm. in an OI too. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, agreed. All righty, Jillian, close us yeah. out for this episode, please. My pleasure. Um, so the band that I'll be talking about that did not get as big or did not get the credit that they deserve, 
um, is School of Seven Bells, which was one of my favorite bands of all time. Um, in 2008, when I was a freshman in college, I got my very first laptop, as many people do, and I learned how to file share on the World Wide Web. Um, from that, I found two... Are you talking about the information superhighway? I never... I would never talk about anything else. The series right here. Mm -hmm. um, and I found these two indie rock playlists. I can still remember their names. One of them was called Blalock, and the other one was Dekadraha. Huh? Oh, don't ask me where in Europe they're from. They're definitely from Europe, though. And whoever these two people are who put together these monthly playlists, we're doing God's work because every playlist, like once a month, I think they all had at least like a hundred songs on them, and they wow. put new ones out every single month. And I recently looked one of them up, and I think they still do it. So I don't know. Props to them, but. Um, on one of those playlists, I found um, School of Seven Bells, the song Half Asleep, which is still one of my favorite songs of all time. Um, and from there, I just like got obsessed with everything that they ever did from that point on. So, uh, they were formed in 2007 in New York city by identical twin sisters, Alejandra and Claudia de Heza. Um, they were in the band on air library, and then they were also touring and opening for Interpol at the same time as secret machines were. Hmm. And Benjamin Curtis was in that band and that's how they met. Oh, man, um, I read several back. interviews because through the years I've read these interviews, but I wanted to brush up and um, for reasons I'll get to, they're very sad to read now. But um, Allie said that the first time um, she actually looked into Benjamin Curtis's eyes while they were talking, she felt like someone hit her with a thousand lightning bolts and that they fell in love hard and fast on tour. And it was definitely proof of past lives. She knew him. Um, she knew him for a thousand years and felt it in every part of her body. Um, that she knew him and from that moment on they were inseparable um, wow. she told him that she was considering starting like a shoegaze band with her sister separate from her current band he was also thinking about starting a new gig so he was like I definitely want to be in on that um, and he had to finish out I think one more tour with Secret Machines and they were opening up for U2 which is kind of a big, big wow. deal um, but while he was on that tour she actually wrote my cable which is one of like the lead songs from alpinisms um and she wrote it about him hmm. and he actually wrote a response song for her that's on b-sides um which i've actually still never heard but it's called my camarilla um as an i miss you letter which i think is hmm. very sweet 
Um, something cool about them as a like band is that they always recorded vocals first and music second. Whoa, so when what? They wrote, yeah, when they wrote songs, it was like, let's see what the twins can come up with harmony-wise. And then like they were like, okay, based off of this, uh, here's the lyrics and everything, and we'll just make that... So suggesting that they're writing melodies around harmonies? Yeah. Whoa. That's so backward from what I know about traditional song. I mean, I feel like most bands are writing or are putting down instrumentals or at and least arrangements. Simultaneously. First. Yeah, right. You know, like I like this. What could we put under that and where can it grow from there? But yeah. that's just not how wow. he did it. And Benjamin Curtis was like um a really amazing producer, but at that point he had never produced a record before. Um, so he said the very first one, he wanted to make sure that he did it with them. So, um, so he started that whole thing. They released Alpinism from 2008. Um, and then they released Disconnect from Desire in 2010. Pitchfork really loved it. Eight out of 10. Um, and around that time period, they had a lot of like separations, like, uh, Claudia, Ali's twin sister decided to leave the band for personal reasons and Ben and Ali broke up right before that album was recorded. So, like, I, I know there's a few bands that still manage to do this, but could you imagine going through such an intense breakup? Because the way that they talk about each other, it's like that was not just like a throwaway relationship. Like, that had to hurt. Editor's note uh, listen to uh, when Sasha talked about Dead like five minutes ago. <laughs> Because yeah. that, that is a band where the, the central relationship in the band broke up and then they released another record after that. It's like, how, mm. how do they do that? Yeah. I don't, like, no. I can't even like see my after we break up. I'm like, all right, we never met. We're done. Like, okay. <laughs> um, I, I emotionally can't handle it. Yeah, that's, so that's I, that's I don't know how I changed my it. name after every single breakup. Mm hmm. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I would say so in in February 2012 they released a concept album that I'm mad that I didn't think of for a concept album um episode but it's called Ghost Story um I have it on vinyl because it's so special to me um and it's based off of uh Ellie's grandmother if I remember correctly Lafay is my favorite song off of that album um and then also in 2012 in November they released the Put Your Sad Down EP which is one of my favorite things that they've ever released also, and like really both of those, isn't that so good they released both of those in 2012 and i was like damn okay these guys are like they're like cooking on gas here they're about to be so well known i think they're at least gonna be on some like festivals and stuff here soon um or at least more than they were currently um from the put your sad down ep my favorite favorite song is faded heart um and then unfortunately in 2013 benjamin curtis was diagnosed with T-cell lymphoblastic lymphoma um, after a few weeks of some symptoms. He unfortunately did not recover and passed away on uh, December 29th of 2013. He was only 35, very devastating because um, he was such a such an incredible, he seems like an amazing person and on top of that, a really incredible musician and created some of my favorite music. Um, and what a loss for um, Ali DeHaza to like lose such a partner in like every aspect of her life. Um, mm. The last piece he actually produced was um, a cover of Joy Ramone's I Got Knocked Down, But I'll Get Up. 
and he sampled songs from his hospital bed. So like there's like beeps in it that are like beeps from like the machines he was hooked up to. He like sampled all of that in it. Um, the song is so good. Their version of it is incredible. I ran every single half marathon I ran. I always had that on my playlist. It's very, very long, but it's very, very good. It's very upbeat and oh, just amazing. Um, their fourth and final album, which was self-titled, um, was recorded obviously before his death, but released after his death yeah. um, in 2016. And, and I think finished and mostly produced posthumously, right? I'm sorry? I, I think it was mostly finished and produced posthumously, right? Like, they, yeah. like he had only done like the initial sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, he'd it. done a good amount of it. And I think a lot of it was just uh, the cleaning up and uh, editing posthumously. But um, yeah, um, they uh, they called it Ellie DeJesus' Nine Elegies to her bandmate, Benjamin Curtis. Almost all of the songs written on that album um are about ben and about like their relationship whether he knew it or not i think he knew like some of the main ones but i don't know if he knew that like every single one of those songs was written about them and their relationship by ellie um and yeah after his death she stopped um i think she toured that album i think with like i can't remember if she did or not I think she at least played a couple shows with someone who like stood in, hmm. um, but I don't think it was near me at all because I didn't get to go. Um, but she had to move out of New York City because it reminded her so much of Benjamin Curtis and it made her so sad to be there and she just needed to start new. So she moved to LA. Um, but I'll leave you with two quotes um, that are very heartbreaking, but very sweet. She said, you've got to understand we met completely fall in love and did music at the same time. The whole arc of the story of School of Seven Bells it's our relationship almost over 10 years. The, re the record is about him, every song, in one way or another. It's crazy. I never vocalized it at the time, but all the lyrics are about him. It, that, it's all that was coming out. Um, I never thought about it directly, but it needed to happen. I'll see him again because when we met, it was like we'd met before in previous lives. And I do believe we have many lives. And I know that because I met Benjamin. Oh, boy. Yeah. Just uh, just such a intense connection and they made you know obviously a beautiful life together and uh like a romantic relationship and a, a friendship relationship and a musical partnership and um but if it helps anyone to think about this i do follow her on instagram and it's been a few years uh since everything and she seems like she's in a very good place now so i'm, I'm happy for her there and i'm thankful for the music that she made um, while she was with School Seven Bells, and I think they should have been bigger. Yeah, uh, I mean, their amazing story and 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 personnel trials aside, um, it, it almost feels like a uh, to use an SAT structure. Uh, Pixies or uh, the Pixies are to Nirvana as School of Seven Bells seems to a lot of modern pop leaning music where mm -hmm. you are taking a lot of elements of shoegaze and drone and ambient music and mixing it with pop sensibilities in a way that feels like it's informing a lot of what modern pop art, like, you know, your, your uh, what is her name? Clario? Clario? Um, yeah. 
um, you know, what, what, you know, modern independent pop artists are doing, um, which is mixing more, you know, uh, independent genre notes with, um, you know, more traditional vocal driven pop songs. Um, yeah, yeah, they feel foundational to like where we are in independent and pop music in in, you know, the 2010s and 2020s. Um, yeah. I agree. And, I don't really like shoegaze. <laughs> like I've, I've really given it a go with my bloody Valentine a bunch of times and I just cannot get into it. But school of seven bells is, is some really good shit. Yeah. They're really good. Yeah. Alrighty. Uh, folks, I'm going to folks being the folks on this podcast, I'm going to mix up the structure here a little bit and we're going to do a little bit of listener mail before we get into our recommendations. Oh, how, do, how do you like them persimmons? My, Sound quality just changed for some reason. Am I still getting? No. Yep. Is it registering? Yep. Okay. All right. Um, so we have another email from DYBE superfan Andy. And Andy writes, <laughs> Andy writes, dudes, I'm so impressed by how honest and introspective this guy. Oh, sorry. This is the uh, episode about songs that were written about us or that we think were written about us or that must have been written about us. Um, It's so interesting how all of your songs were about acceptance and longing. I wonder if that's a true universal experience or a shared experience that's the basis for the friendship we all share. You're all so talented, knowledgeable, and well-spoken. Damn. Great pod. Love Andy, last name withheld... Uh, self-proclaimed G-F-O-P great friend of the pod great friend of the pod <laughs> love him <laughs> Andy oh, keep your emails dear. coming and other listeners you can also be a great friend of the pod if you want to email us at dybepod at gmail.com yeah that'd be pretty great you yeah. do it mm-hmm. alrighty folks every episode we give you a little bit of homework un poco de tarea for you to listen to at home. And it's a little segment we like to call Songs of the Week. Um, We'll retain the order this time and I will recommend Campfire by Kevin Morby. In the sky was a thousand years old Always kept time in my back pocket No man, goddamn, came to take my soul. Shut the door, then lock it. In where have Guys, I want to tell you a little story. I was, uh, uh, I was taking a little drive a couple weeks ago, and I thought, you know what? You're a big Waxahachie fan. Maybe it's time that you start listening to a little bit of her beau, Kevin Morby's music. So I started with uh, a single that he had just released off of his forthcoming Sundowner. Actually, it will have been released by the time this episode comes out. Uh, So I put on Campfire and immediately started crying. Don't know why. Wasn't even paying attention to the lyrics. But there was something about the quality of the instrumentation and the production that spoke to me deep in my soul. Um... Not really sure what Campfire is about. Have not interrogated the lyrics, but I love the stuff that he's been releasing from Sundowner. I've also been listening to a lot of his previous album, Oh My God, um, and really digging Kevin Morby. Uh, So yeah, my song for the week is Campfire by Kevin Morby. Mike, what do you got for us this week? 
Yeah, my song for the week is called Let's Not Lose Our Heads by Morning Bell. All one word. From the garden, there's whispers and laughter. Why did we end up stuck on the outside? It's a really catchy rock song that is really just about keeping cool while our society goes to shit. Um, nothing new there. Uh, the song has, it's actually a, a, not a new song. Uh, the song has drum, like drum roll drums, backup woos, uh, very clean guitar riffs that really just kind of complement and fill out the chorus and add to like the upbeat catchiness of the song while having horribly depressing lyrics nice. in a slightly um, positive way. But yeah, very catchy song. Highly recommend. Sounds very zeitgeisty, even though it's not a new song. It also, you could have been describing the Bright Eye song, Let's Not Shit Ourselves, um, which is the closing <laughs> song off Lifted, which is essentially about the same thing. But I'm assuming this one is not. 15 minutes or however long that song is eight minutes no, no. yeah good 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 like three i think all righty sasha lay your song for the week on us my song for the week is can i believe you by fleet foxes I believe it's the lead sing single from their latest album, which was released about three weeks ago in September. Um, I don't really have much to say about this song, um, but I, I guess for me, it's my favorite song of theirs in a while. Mm -hmm. I kind of fell off on them mm -hmm. after Help Helplessness Blues. Um, but like, um, though I think they've only had one album in between Helplessness Blues and, and Shore which is their latest. Um, but anyway, I really, really like this album. Like, really love it. Um, it's just like classic Fleet Foxes, the beautiful vocals, which have always been my favorite thing about them. Um, and yeah, I just think in general, this, it's a really great piece of work, that album. It's, it's very consistent throughout um, and just has a really beautiful flow to it that I really like. It's been a really nice, like, relaxing listen for me these last few weeks. Yeah, Sasha, I'm right there with you. I fell off even earlier after self-titled. You know, I'm still a white white winter hymnal bitch, but uh, <laughs> I feel like aren't we all? I feel like what they've what they've lost is a lot of the delicacy of their music, and it's just it feels very like substantial now. Like you still have the beautiful yeah. vocal melodies, but there's something that's less like. Like like they were part of that new sincerity wave of like you know the the yeah. early two thousand tens, and 
yeah, I'm really enjoying the new. It's a little weird too, like production wise, yeah. uh, melody yeah. wise. Um, yeah, I'm really, really enjoying it. So good, yeah, yeah good wreck. Mike, yours was bad. No, I'm just kidding. Yours was. Yeah, <laughs> Mine's good. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jillian. Final song for the week. Do it. Final song for the week is by Mountain Man. It's a cover of Wilco's um, called You and I. All the good with the bad Make something that no one else has but You and I You and I Me and you What can we do? Well, the words we use sometimes are misconstrued. It's just a beautiful song. Mountain Man is a trio of three women whose voices melt together like butter. Um, It's like just really beautiful and calming to listen to. And it's just like a very sweet song. Hmm. Um, I'm not a huge Wilco fan, not on purpose, but I've just never got like sat down and listened to an album, which might be sacrilegious for this city um but if someone wants to come at me and tell me uh you're not from here (laughs) come at me would love the wreck so that's that's my song for the week i think will goes fine they're good yeah same i'll listen to to a yankee foxtrot hotel right the album racks from them go for it yeah cool uh folks that is all we have for you for this episode of Did You Bring Earplugs? Our theme, as always, is brought to you by Josh Stanley of the band Modaf. You can listen to their beautiful music. Beautiful? Yeah, sure, why not? At H- <laughs> I almost said HTTP. M-O-D-A-F-F dot bandcamp dot com. I've been on the internet before, swear to God. Uh, you can follow us on inst- us on Instagram at D-Y-B-E-Pod. And like I said earlier, email us at D-Y-B-E-Pod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Please be nice. Jeez, uh, is that it, guys? Is that is that all there is to a fire slash this episode of DYBE? Question mark. Yeah. Let's wrap it up. All right, folks. Until next time. Oh, wait, oh, wait, I gotta I gotta try a, a slogan, a new slogan. Um, oh, yeah. Trying a new slogan every single time. So how about this time? Um, uh, 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 God, That's it. Yeah. Uh, That's yeah. It. That, that was it. Nah. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.